Would you turn with me to the 17th chapter of Acts? And we'll continue on in Luke's history of the early church. Most of us, I'm sure, have friends who have been or are being recruited by cults. And by cults, I mean any extra biblical group, people who may go under the name of of the Christian church, but who are, in fact, uh, non-Christian in their their beliefs. And often they appear very Christian, and people are uh, seduced away from apostolic New Testament Christian belief because they don't uh, really understand what these what these folks are teaching and that's always very sad and disturbing to us uh, I have over the course of, of uh, the years developed what I think is a is a workable theory to explain why why people are caught up in cults often people who ought to know better who know the scriptures quite well uh, have been taught the word over a long period of time will give up those beliefs and move into a cult. And I think I know why. It's because the appeal of an occult is almost wholly emotional. It is almost never, if ever, an appeal to reason. Uh, cults are very attractive to people that are looking for something. Most people in the world are seeking some way to resolve the conflict in their life between what they know ought to be and what is. We look at our lives and we see our behavior and we don't like it very well. We want to do better. And we don't know how. And so we start looking for some answers. And uh, in, in, in essence become seekers. And it's these sorts of people that cults prey upon. Their approach initially, in almost every case, is simply to love people. That's, uh, that's devastating. You know, most of us are really looking for someone who wants us and who cares about us, and unfortunately, a lot of churches just aren't caring churches. They tend to be cold, and though truth is taught there, there isn't a great deal of, of love, and people don't feel needed and, and wanted, and here's a group that cares about me. And uh, they're sort of absorbed into the cult on that basis. Initially, uh, secondly, it seems to me that cults almost always never tell you what they really believe up front. They will either redefine terms so that they sound Christian, but are not, or they will tell you half lies. For example, they will tell you that Jesus is God, but they they don't really believe that. They believe something entirely different, or they define Jesus deity in in some terms other than New Testament terms, terminology, uh, or they would just outright lie. The Moonies, as you well know, have a doctrine of heavenly deception by which they believe that the end justifies the means, and they will just flat out lie to you about what they believe. And then the third step is to substitute some other authority for, uh, for the Scriptures, and it always seems so appealing, very emotionally alluring, because this is a person who has received a later revelation, or he has an authoritative interpretation of the Word, or he's written a book that once for all clears up all the difficulties of the New Testament. And if you just read this book, it explains the Bible. And now you'll know what the Bible really teaches. And people are just swept into this thing. Often, once they're in the group and they know they're loved and accepted, then they're indoctrinated. And the indoctrination comes so thick and fast, you don't really have time to think. I remember sitting in one meeting one time, a seminar, where 
I was being taught by this method, and we were there for about six hours. And one person after another hammered away, and something just happens to your brain after a while. You just, your retrieval system goes awry. You don't even think anymore. You don't analyze or, or catalog facts. You just accept everything that comes in. And, and people are brought from one set of beliefs to another, not through any rational process, but through the strong appeal to emotion. Which is why our Lord told us that we ought to be as wise as serpents. As innocent as sheep, but as wise as serpents. We need to think. We need to be rational, reasonable people. And operate on, on the basis of reason rather than, than emotion. Now, it's a sort of appeal that we see Paul making in, in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Luke is in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy now make up this uh, missionary team. Uh, Luke has been left behind in Philippi. And we read in verse 1 that when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was the synagogue of the Jews. Luke, as his custom is, passes over an awful lot of history with one sentence. This was a journey of about 100 miles, 30 miles on to Amphipolis and 35 to Apollonia and about the same distance on to Thessalonica. He says nothing of what happened in those cities. I get the impression that they just passed through, perhaps spending a night there, walking 30 miles the next day, spending the night in the next city, and then making their way on to Thessalonica because, as Luke says, there was the synagogue of the Jews there, probably the only synagogue in that district of Macedonia. And I get the impression that's what Paul was doing. He wanted to get back to his normal custom of, of preaching in the synagogues. Thessalonica was a big city. It's about the size of Boise now. I have no idea what, what size it was then, but it was certainly the largest city in Macedonia, big, bustling metropolis right on the seashore. It looks sort of like pictures I've seen of Miami Beach with high-rise uh, apartments down by the seashore. And it was in Paul's day a, a very wealthy, powerful, influ influential city located right on the main east-west route between Asia and, and Italy. Anyone traveling overland from Rome to Asia had to travel right through the city of Thessalonica. So it was, for Paul's purposes, very strategic, and also because there was a synagogue there, he went, he went to that city. And Luke tells us, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, that is, the Jews that were in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, this isn't all he did. If you read through the books of First and Second Thessalonians, you'll discover that he, he worked night and day as he describes his activities in that city. He was a tent maker, and he labored hard to support himself. But uh, on the Sabbath, uh, on three Sabbaths in sequence, he went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Uh, Luke says, literally, he opened up the Scriptures to them. It's the same word that Luke uses earlier in his gospel when he describes Jesus walking beside the disciples from Emmaus. And, and it was, he was unknown to them. And he began to interpret all the Old Testament with reference to himself. And uh, Luke uses that term, same term here. 
he interpreted the scriptures and he proved that Jesus was the Messiah. The word means to lay one thing alongside another. Apparently, he would read the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus and then he would show how Jesus had fulfilled those prophecies to, uh, to the letter. He, uh, he argued from the word. So that's, they, they held the scriptures in common as an authority because he was talking to Jews. They venerated the Old Testament. They loved it. They believed it. So that became the basis of his, of his, uh, of his argument. But he reasoned with them, you see. He argued from the basis of the facts in Scripture. He appealed to their minds. He would take the Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53 that predict a suffering Christ, and he would, as uh, one of the, the uh, later versions of the New Testament, of the book of, of Acts tells us, insert the name of Jesus. He would read uh, a, an Old Testament passage and insert Jesus' name where it was appropriate, and he would argue from that Scripture. Or he would take Psalm 22 and uh, argue from that passage that the Messiah is a suffering Messiah. You see, he appealed to their mind. It was a reasonable, rational discussion. And in verse 4, we read that some of them were persuaded, that is, some of the Jews in the synagogue, and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks, these would be the Gentile uh, believers, not proselytes. They were Greeks who had attached themselves to the synagogue because they had a hunger for spiritual things. They'd found nothing in the Greek world to assuage the, the hunger in their heart. And a number of leading women. Here these noble women show up again as they did in, in Philippi. Women in the Western world held up a, a much higher position socially than they did in the Eastern world. Women in, uh, uh, in some of the cities that Paul, where Paul established churches earlier in Asia Minor tended to be uh, oppressed. But in the Greek world, they were held in, in high regard and often highly educated. These women had been educated in, in Greek classical thought and consequently had adopted the lifestyle that flows out of that sort of thinking and some of the, the degraded practices of the Greeks. So while their minds were being satisfied, their hearts were not. They were, they were empty, devastated women, and they had attached themselves to the synagogues because their, uh, a higher ethical standard was believed and, and taught. And, and these women, when they heard Paul preach, realized that uh, what he said was true, that Jesus was uh, indeed the Savior they were looking for. But uh, Luke tells us in verse 5, the Jews, instead of rejoicing that the Gentiles were, were being reached, became jealous. And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Uh, these wicked men in the marketplace were street gangs, much like the street gangs you find in the inner city today. And... Uh, these agitators, Jewish agitators, gathered them together and inflamed the mob. They had nothing against Paul and Silas. They didn't even know who they were. But they became the, the agents through which these, these Jews acted. And they set the city in an uproar. And they came to the house of Jason, who was apparently Paul's host, and uh, were seeking to bring Paul and Silas out. 
but uh, Mrs. Jason had sent Paul to the 7-Eleven to uh, get a half gallon of milk, and he happened not to be home at the time. So they dragged Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that strange? They had it just exactly backwards. The world's been upside down ever since the time of Adam. These men had actually turned the world right side up. But uh, they didn't see it that way. And they appealed to the authorities uh, who, in verse 9, were told simply received a pledge from Jason and the others and released them, which seems a lenient sort of, of action on the part of the officials given the, the riot in town. But I think the officials saw through this attempt to discredit Paul. They had no real case for their uh, charges. And so they asked Jason to leave a bond or to post a bond, which I think guaranteed the fact that Paul would never come back to, to Thessalonica again. Uh, Paul was expelled from the city and uh, barred from access. I think that's what he means in First Thessalonians when, he's, when he writes and he says, I, Many, many times I wanted to come see you, but Satan opposed me. He tried through legal channels and through other means to get back to the church in Thessalonica, and, and he never, never got back there, as far as we know. Never visited that city again. And though he sees that as Satan's work, behind it was the sovereign activity of God, because it was probably the best thing in the world for that church that the Apostle Paul never go back there again. In fact, I've long believed that if you just threw all of the preachers out of town, the church would take off. Because the tendency is to let the professionals do it all. After all, you know, we, we get paid to be good. You're good for nothing. <laughs> and uh, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to witness, and I'm supposed to counsel, and I'm supposed to teach the Bible. That's what I get paid to do. And so people let me do it. But you see, that's not the picture you see in the New Testament. There were no pros in the New Testament in that sense. There was no distinction between clergy and laity. Every person in the body of Christ had a gift. All were to be involved in the work of the ministry, teaching and counseling and encouraging and witnessing as God has, has gifted you, both in terms of spiritual gifts and the gift of himself, his resource, himself indwelling us to give us the power to, to get involved in other people's lives and to point them to Christ, who can change them. That's your job, and my job, simply because I'm a member of the body of Christ, not, not because I'm professionally a, a Christian. I had someone call me a few weeks back. It uh, seemed to be in, in a desperate uh, state. They said, I just have to see you today. And unfortunately, I was leaving town. I was going to Idaho Falls and, and just getting ready to leave that afternoon and and I said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have to wait until we get back. Uh, he said, no, I have to see you today. And I said, well, I just, I can't, can't do it. I'm, I'm really sorry. And I gave him the names of some other people. And, and uh, later that weekend, when I returned home, I called, called him up and said, how, you know, how did things go? And he says, well, it worked out really great. He said, I, I tried all the people whose names you gave me, and, and they couldn't get together with me, but I ran across a friend downtown and, and he opened up the scriptures to me and, and encouraged me from the word, and things are fine. Now, that's the way the body ought to be functioning, you see. 
And that's what happened in, in Thessalonica to this, this group of Christians. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, when he writes back to them, the gospel, he says, has sounded forth from you throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is the region up to the north. That's uh, northern Greece today, still called Macedonia. And in the south was Achaia, where Corinth and Athens and those other cities were. In fact, Paul says the gospel has gone all over Greece. In fact, he says it's gone over the whole world because of you. Travelers down the Ignatian Way, the, that main thoroughfare ran right through the center of Thessalonica. In fact, it was the main street of town. And there were merchants and businessmen and, and uh, school teachers, housewives, executives, athletes in that city who were giving witness to the truth, just sharing what Christ had done with them. And, and people all over the Roman world were finding Christ as a result. And it was even going down to Achaia. Uh, I can envision in my mind a young uh, computer uh, salesman from uh, Thessalonica going down to Corinth for a convention. And you know what conventions are like after work is over, the fun begins. And uh, some of his fellow salesmen say, uh, you know, the day is over. Let's, uh, let's go up to the Acro Corinth where the dancing girls are and let's, uh, let's make a night of it. And our Christian friend from Thessalonica says, oh, well, says, you know, I, I, I've gone that route before. And I find that it just doesn't satisfy. It leaves me far more empty. And as a matter of fact, the more of that you get, the more you want. That's a bottomless pit. So, but I, I found someone who satisfied that hunger in my heart. And he'd begin to share Christ and the gospel then would spread all over Achaia. Yeah, that was ha what was happening. Tremendous impact of the gospel because the people in Thessalonica took it seriously. And began and began to proclaim it wherever they uh, wherever they went. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. In verse ten, the after the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night. This wasn't the first time that Paul scampered away under cover of darkness to another location. He went to Berea. Uh, Berea was about sixty miles south of Thessalonica. It was a sort of a cultural backwater. In fact, uh, one of the early uh, Roman writers, Cicero, refers to it as a kind of a hick town off the beaten path. And uh, Paul and Silas went down to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Apparently, there was a synagogue there as well. And Luke says in these uh, familiar words, These Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Many of them, many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Interesting, isn't it, that he mentions the women before the men? Uh, I suppose there are hundreds and hundreds of churches that are designated Berean churches, Berean Baptist Church or Berean Community Church. My mother used to lead a Bible study that, that she called the Scoberian group, a composite of Schofield, uh, Dr. Schofield's name, and, and Berean. Uh, the idea being that these Bereans were noble because they had an attitude toward the Scriptures that the Jews up in Thessalonica did not have. And, and they were, as Luke puts it. Now, he's not comparing the two churches. He's comparing the attitude of the Jews in the synagogue at Berea toward those in the synagogue at uh, Thessalonica. 
Uh, back in verse 4, Luke tells us that some of those Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica believed. Here, many believed. And uh, they believed uh, because, and it's obviously Luke's argument, they believed because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. What things? Well, the things that the Apostle Paul preached. The Apostle Paul. When he said, now the Old Testament tells us that Jesus was the Messiah. They said, where? Where? Show it to me. They were from Missouri. They had to be shown. Well, they went back to their house and they, they produced their scrolls. In those days, uh, the written word was uh, quite well distributed. Paul himself carried parchments, which were Old Testament scriptures, around with him. And, and uh, the word was accessible to these Jews. And when Paul would preach, they'd wrinkle their brows and they'd say, maybe, maybe that's what the Old Testament says, but I've got to think that one through. And they would go back to the Scriptures and open them up and decide for themselves if that's what the Word says. And Luke says they were noble. That's a kingly thing to do. It's a noble task. Unfortunately, we... Uh, we identify faith sometimes with being naive and gullible. We'll swallow anything as long as it sounds, uh, sounds like the truth. But remember, Jesus said we're to be as wise as serpents. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy says, um, think about these things. He gives a list of things uh, to be treated as facts. And he says, now think about these things. And the Lord will give you understanding in all of them. He recognizes that there is a supernatural element to our understanding of Scripture. The, the Spirit of God has to open our minds to understand, but it, it starts with the reason. We need to ask hard questions of the Scripture. We should never discourage anyone from asking hard questions. When students come home with, and, and they're disturbed about something they've heard in the classroom and, and they want to think it through, we should never shut them down. That's a high and holy thing. God has given us minds uh, with which uh, you know, we're to use them. Well, let's, let's think. Let's be reasonable. Let's be as wise as, as serpents. Luke says that's, that's noble. Now, certainly when, when a non-Christian uh, says the thing is true, our immediate reaction ought to be, well, maybe it is. We need to recognize that there is truth out, out there in the world, in secular society. Truth is taught in classrooms. Uh, if it's true, it's God's truth. He's the author of all truth. And it's not merely error that you hear in a classroom. Much of it is truth. So we should not be cynical and, and, and critical. But we need to ask ourselves the question, is that true? How do I know that's true? If it's something that I find in Scripture, yes, it's true. If it's something contrary to Scripture, no, that's not true. If it's something that, uh, that Scripture says nothing about, then my attitude may be, well, I don't know. Maybe it is or maybe it isn't. I, I can't be sure. But certainly if it's contrary to the Word, then it's not, it's not true. Now, most of us, I think, would agree that that's the attitude we ought to take toward the world around us. But unfortunately, we don't translate that into into thinking about Christians when they teach. When you hear someone preach on the radio or you listen to a tape and it's a, he, he's an evangelical, he believes the Bible, and he teaches the Bible, and we tend to let our, our defenses down and we'll believe anything 
they say. Well, see, again, if we're noble, we'll ask ourselves the question, is that in Scripture? And if it's not, even if, uh, even if I believe most of what he says, even if he has theological degrees, even if he's highly regarded, then we need to discredit what he says because our authority is not man. Our authority is the Word. When Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica, he preached from the Scriptures. When he went to Berea, he preached from the Scriptures. This is our authority. Not what any man says. Don't believe what I tell you, for goodness sake. Don't believe what Brian Fisher tells you. We could be dead wrong. We're infallible. I mean, we're fallible, just like you. <laughs> A little Freudian slip there. <clears throat> We're fallible. We make mistakes. We don't want to, but we do. All of us do. It's amazing how many things we believe because we were told. That's what the Bible says, but we've never checked it out first. Someone challenged me on that the other day. I made a statement, and they said, where does it say that in the Bible? And I stopped, and I thought, well, I'm sure I must say it somewhere. <laughs> but I couldn't for the life of me think of a single place where it said that. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't say that. And I was wrong. Because someone had told me, and I wasn't noble enough to check it out. Let's be students of the Word. Don't take anyone's Word for anything. Listen to them. There's no, God puts no premium on being cynical. That's not a Christian attribute. We need to be uh, accepted and believing and teachable and tractable in our thinking. But check out what they say by Scripture. That's our authority. The, the only authority we have is the Old and New Testament. And that's the one we have to believe. Now, some people will come to you and say, well, yeah, you have the Old and New Testament, but, but you see, I'm a prophet also. I found another book. Or um, God appeared to me in a dream, in a vision, and he interpreted all of Scripture to me, and I have a little different view than the apostles. And this is, this is the final word on that subject. How do we check them out? How do we know? Perhaps there are prophets arising all around us. How do we know? Some of them are good people. Very kind, very loving, seem to be very righteous. How do we know? Well, that's not a new problem. Israel had the same problem. How would they discern between a false prophet and a true prophet? Well, shortly before Israel went into the, into the land of Canaan, and when Moses knew that he would, he would die, he gave them a set of standards that they were to apply when anyone came and said he was a prophet. And they're found in Deuteronomy 18. I don't have time to look at them this morning, but I encourage you to go home and read that chapter, note it down in your, that insert that you have in your bulletin, and read through it when you get home. Because, again, don't take my word for it. Say that yourself. Moses said there are three criteria that you apply when someone shows up on your doorstep and, and tell you that they have a later word than the Bible that is just as authoritative or more authoritative in the Scripture. Number one, ask them if they're a Jew. Because Moses says the first credential is that it must be one of your brothers, one of your countrymen. And as Paul puts it in, uh, in Romans, one of the uniquenesses of the of, of the nation of Israel is that God gave them 
the oracles. Uh, God chose one group of people to reveal himself through, and only one. So that's the first question. Are you a Jew? I say, no. Well, I'm sorry, then you're not a prophet. That's number one. Number two, uh, are you receiving direct revelation? Moses says there will be a prophet like me to whom God spoke not through uh, visions and dreams, but he spoke face to face. In other words, they derived their revelation not through uh, some discovery by reading the Bible, uh, but and came up with some interpretations diverse from any other interpretation, but rather that God revealed himself directly to them face to face. That's the second criterion. The third is, can you predict the future, and have you predicted the future with 100% accuracy? Never miss. The predictive element in the prophets was not there simply to satisfy people's curiosity. Unfortunately, that's how we study prophecy. That's what we always think of, too, when we think of prophets. Oh, yeah, those are the people that predicted the future. Yes, they did. But the primary reason for predicting the future was to authenticate their message. If they could predict an event with absolute certainty and it came to pass, then you could listen to them. And so that's the final and perhaps most important question to ask. Do you or have you predicted the future with 100% accuracy? If they haven't, then you don't have to listen to them. They are not a prophet of God. And in Israel, as you know, if they missed, they were taken out in stone, which was a rather effective way to get rid of false prophets. Now, we don't do that today, but we don't have to listen to them. Now, I'm not, there's nothing in Scripture that says there couldn't be a later revelation. The passage in the book of Revelation about uh, adding to this book is a reference to the book of Revelation it's, itself and was a an ending that was very often found in apocalyptic literature. It's not only found in the book of Revelation, it's found in other Greek writings outside of the Scripture. So it really has nothing to do with a completed canon. The question to ask is, is there today a Jew who's receiving direct revelation, who is predicting the future with 100% accuracy? If so, we better listen to him. But if not, we don't have to listen to him at all. In fact, Moses says, don't fear him. Disregard what he has to say. And since I don't see anyone around who meets those, uh, those canons, I, I, I say this is the revelation that we have. This is our authority, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's the only authority we have, no man, just God's Word. Now, my question to you and me is, are we noble like the Thessalonians, like the Bereans? Are we searching this, this book daily? When you hear the Word taught, do you go home? And examine the text to see if the person who taught is right? Are you thinking through the truth with your minds? That's nobility. And furthermore, as we think through the truth, we need to let it go to work in our lives because we don't want merely a heady faith. We want a faith that changes us. And so our appeal is not merely to think about the Scriptures, but to also let the Scriptures do their work. They, they are, as James said, like a mirror. We look in, in the Word and we see ourselves, and we see where we need to change. And we say, God, here's where I'm out of conformity to you. Will, will you change me? Will, will you begin to work in my life to conform me to your image as I see it revealed in, in Scripture? And Luke would say that's 
That's scriptural nobility. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for giving us our minds. We know they're, they are God-given instruments which are to be used. And uh, we want to use them to the fullest. We recognize that they are imperfect instruments. They can lead us astray. Uh, we can't ultimately depend upon them, but we can use them without abusing, uh, uh, without abusing them. We ask that you would give us eyes to see as, as we look at the Scriptures. Help us to see what we need to see. Help us to see ourselves and what we need to change and help us to see the world around us and what needs to be changed about the world and help us to see who you are and what you can do both about our our condition and the condition of, of our world. May we be men and women of the Word. Make us students of Scripture, wise in our understanding of them and able to use them with tact and with grace and with love to answer the objections of people around us and to bring comfort and encouragement and help to those who are, in, who, are, who are in need about us. Thank you for giving us this book. It is so utterly reliable. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're glad to be here this morning and uh, want to thank you folks for all that you've done for us through the years. And this is Peshaifa. Uh, the chief of the trio tribe. He's come up to help me in translation. In John chapter 15, or John chapter 17, uh, the Lord Jesus in his prayer says, Keep by thine own name those that thou hast given to me. The name of Jesus there's power in. It doesn't only save men, it keeps men. And when we went to this tribe some 22 years ago to the trios in Suriname, uh, they hadn't heard the name of God. But we proclaim the name of Jesus, and this man came to know the Savior. He wants to tell you about it this morning. I call you my tribesmen. I have come. I am here with you this morning. It was two weeks ago Saturday that we arrived in Boise. I am a trio Indian, and my name is Peshaifa. My village is far away, way over near the border of Brazil in the country of Suriname. Why have I come here? I've come here to work, to translate... Uh, God's word into my language. Uh, in 1977, I came here to help in the translation of the New Testament. Now we're working on the Old so we're working on the first part of the Bible now and that's why God has uh, brought me here this is my work to do for him now I'm happy to see all of you here I can just see you I don't speak the same language you do so I can't talk to you 
We can grab each other's hands and we can smile at each other, but I can't talk to you. I want to tell you how I came to receive Jesus as my Savior. I was ignorant about who God was as I grew up way down there in the jungle near the uh, on the Brazil side of the border. It was a big village at that time. It was my father. He was the chief of it. Shamuaka was the name. That's where I was born. But after my father died, I left there and came over into the country of Suriname. We were a big tribe at first, but we died out. The older generation uh, ceased to be. I came with another man over into Suriname. I hadn't heard the name of Jesus or of God. I didn't know who he was. We, we were trusting in the spirits. We called upon the spirits to help us. The spirits of the rocks, the mountains, and the hills. It was the spirits, the evil spirits that were our God because we didn't know who God was. I had no idea that a God, uh, there was a God that loved me. I was fearful as I grew up. We feared the spirits. We were always living in fear of them. And we were fearful of other people as well. But our trust in the spirits, it didn't help us because they didn't fix us good. Our way of life was to uh, look to the witch doctors to make strong drink, to get drunk, to be sure we had our uh, war clubs and our spears ready in case of attack. And uh, when I came into Suriname about that same time, one came telling us of the news of Jesus. We had seen some people before, some Bush Negroes had come into our village, some Brazilians from way down the river, but they didn't have anything to tell us. They told us about spirits, like our spirits, but about God and about Jesus, they didn't tell this message to us. I heard first from my tribesmen, someone's come to tell us something. He's someone that's got a song. He sings. That's what he is. He has a message to tell. 
ダメウカナクナイクデタデミポーリンイダレタシワイモエマレネシワイ。And that made me interested. Who was it that one that ha- was singing, one that was happy? I wanted to hear about him. マイダメエイランダトゥアイダマトゥアシェモエ。And after one year he came back. This one did. イダマトゥアントゥアシェマネファクローニカト。I heard. He's come back. Claude's come back. That's what I heard. So I wanted to go see him, and I went. I had a little boy at that time. He was just,、uh, just been born. And、uh, we were coming through the jungle. We camped one night. At a sh- we made a shelter. And、uh, my little baby. Well, fell out of my wife's arms into the fire. And so that made me want to go faster, and I went and I met this one. I thought he was a witch doctor, and I thought maybe he could make my boy well. No, I'm not a witch doctor. Another one. The one is above us. God, he's up there. He can help us, though, he told me. What? Where is God? I look up, I can't see Him. You know, I was ignorant of God. I just didn't understand those spiritual things. And then He told us every day more about God. And then I heard it clearly, and it made me happy. And finally, I said, God really is a good one. And He really made me happy inside. But first, I heard that Jesus loved me, but He died. He went to the ground. He came back. And that was almost too much for me to understand. But after that, I did receive Jesus. And today I'm happy.、Yeah. Just that much I want to tell you today. I'm a happy one with Jesus today. My father told me white people were mean, they were fierce. I was afraid of them as I grew up. But here I see you as good ones. And it's good to be here. That's all I want to say now. Thanks.